0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to this episode of Made You Think. This one is new and experiment in a few ways. It is the first multi-person episode, so it's not just Neil and I hanging out. Neil is here though. Hi Neil.
1: What's up, Nat? (laughs)
0: And we're actually over Skype today because we're talking about cryptocurrency and it's something that Neil's a complete novice in. I have a bit of familiarity with, but we've brought on two of our friends, Adil Majid and Taylor Pearson. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in a second, but we brought them on because one... Again, like Neil and I with the show, we all have a good rapport. We all can talk about this stuff forever. And Adil and Taylor have been interested in following the space for years. And we thought that their expertise would lend a lot to this conversation. So we're going to dive in in a second. But first, Taylor, welcome. Uh, why don't you take a second, introduce yourself, let us know uh, a bit about who you are and what you're working on.
2: Yeah, so thanks for having me. I think this will be really fun. Um, my name's Taylor. I mostly am a writer. I write books, articles, I do some consulting stuff kind of around small business startup land. And then for the past like six months in earnest, but uh, the past couple of years have kind of had like a side uh, nights and weekends interest in cryptocurrency.
0: Perfect. We're going to come back to that in a second. But Adil, let the audience know a bit about who you are and what you're working on as well.
3: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Adil. I'm a designer. I work at a wearable company called Spire and I've been interested in cryptocurrencies for a little over four to five years now, starting a little bit before the 2013, 2014 bubble, and uh, got a lot deeper into it over the last couple of years after I, I lost some money in 2013, 2014, panic selling. And it's just, frankly, the most fascinating space I believe in tech right now. There's just so much going on and there's so many likes to it, so I'm really excited to dive in.
0: Yeah, so what got you interested in it back in that 2013 period of deal?
3: My roommate was dealing with this internet money and I didn't know what it was. And he was telling me a lot about how folks were making bank off of it. So a lot of it was about fear of missing out initially. I put a small amount of money in. I was you know, a poor college student. So I just put in kind of what I had at the time, more of as a way to get skin in the game so that I would be interested in reading about it more. It's pretty technically heavy, at least at the time, the way I was approaching it was. I don't think that's the best way to learn it necessarily, but that was how I had approached it. So put some money in to get some skin in the game. And uh, yeah, eventually I got pretty obsessed. There's quite a few likes to it but initially it started out as, as fear of missing out which i imagine is probably why a lot of people are listening to the podcast right now is going on and you know how much
1: press there is around the current bubble and also yeah. why i have so many questions for you guys because i'm feeling that these days not really <laughs> being too much in it i have a, a little bit of play money in it but not because i understand anything truly just because of fear of missing out
0: <laughs> <laughs> taylor what about you what got you interested in it initially
2: So I was, I lived in Asia for two years, like late 2012 to 2014, and there's like kind of a community of, you call them like sovereign freedom people, uh, but these kind of people who are distrustful of the American government. So you think about like investors that diversify their assets across different asset classes, like stocks and bonds, Kind of the point with the sovereign freedom crowd is, well, all those things are, are centralized in the United States, for example, if you're American or whatever your country of origin is. You need to think about how to diversify your sovereign risk. Uh, and so they were very into Bitcoin. That was one of the communities, I think, that got it very, very quickly, this idea of a currency that no nation state controls, which uh, I will come back to, I'm sure. And that was kind of what got me interested. I didn't have really any understanding uh, at the time. Um, I didn't buy any at the time. Most of the people I knew that really got it at that point were uh, at least somewhat technical, like they could understand the... Um, the cryptography and the computer science. Uh, I don't have any technical background, and so that kind of went over my head. And then maybe early 2015, I kind of said, "Huh, it looks like there's something here." And uh, similar to a deal, just like put a little bit of skin in the game as a way to sort of like, all right, if I have you know some skin in the game, I'll start reading about it. And then it kind of developed from there. And I think the two books that really got me more and more interested were um, one is a book called The Dictator's Handbook which talks about, he has this idea called the selectariat, but basically the reason that democracies tend to be better governmental systems than dictatorships is because the leader has to be more responsive to a larger selection of the populace. That In a way, a a democracy is more decentralized uh, than a dictatorship. So kind of the way he talked about power and the effects that distributing or decentralizing that power had, I thought was really compelling. And then a book by Tim Wu called The Master Switch, which is kind of a warning about, you know, early on in the internet, it was this kind of just going to disintermediate everyone. And, you know, everyone's going to be this, you know, small, independent, own all their assets on the internet. And we're going to get rid of these big institutions. And now, you know, we have this recentralization, right? We have like Amazon and Facebook and Google and sort of the recreation of the walled gardens, on the internet. And so thinking about you know how, how could you potentially decentralize some of those walled gardens and what would be the societal impact of that. And that kind of idea I think was, when I understood that and started to understand something about cryptocurrency, that became really compelling
0: to me.
1: Yeah, that's really, really interesting.
0: What is it about cryptocurrency that allows for this kind of decentralization? Because that word gets thrown around a lot in this space. And I think people have this idea, they understand that, okay, it's not fiat money, it's not owned by the US government, but what about it makes it special in that it's not controlled by a central authority?
2: So as I understand it, and I think Adil probably has a better technical understanding than I do. So I hope he'll interrupt me and, and jump in. But if you're talking about like Bitcoin specifically, I understand Bitcoin better than the the other cryptocurrencies, you have kind of the initial code or the initial code base Which says very specifically how many Bitcoin are going to be created and over what timeline those are going to be created. So, compared to, say, the Federal Reserve, where, you know, if the chair of the Federal Reserve decides they want to print more money, they can do that. And there's no, you know, they don't have to write down that we're going to do it this and this. They have, you know, a meeting every quarter where they announce what they're going to do to interest rates and if they're going to distribute more money. So, you have more certainty in that. And then, as opposed to, you know, if you keep your money in, a bank, I lived in Argentina for a while. One of the things that happened in Argentina in 2001 was for most of the 90s, Argentina had their currency pegged to the dollar. So one Argentinian peso meant one dollar. So if you had you know, 5,000 Argentinian pesos in the bank, you could just go to the government and say, hey, I want to convert these into US dollars. And they would convert them. And one of the things that did was it made Argentina less competitive as an exporter, right? It was Their products were more expensive to export. And so at a certain point, the government decided to basically devalue the currency that previously one peso had been $1. And they said, all of a sudden, four pesos equals dollars. So if you had 10,000 pesos in the bank, You know, on Monday, that was worth $10,000. On Tuesday, that was worth $2,500. And with Bitcoin, you can't do that. There isn't a a central institution that can kind of revalue that currency.
1: I was just going to follow up on that with a a question. So I guess in a way, that was specifically for Bitcoin, right? Yes. Okay. So Bitcoin, I guess, in that sense, incentivizes or at least protects saving, as far as I'm understanding, because you know the supply of it, like it can't be inflated.
2: As I understand it, yeah, I think the major value proposition of Bitcoin is as a store of value. So the analogy that makes the most sense to me is Bitcoin is sort of digital gold. Like in the same way, no one can create more. It's, you know, you can create more gold, like gold is mined, but at a pretty slow rate, uh, you can't like magically generate more Bitcoin. It's already, it's predetermined, so to speak.
1: Got it. Okay, yeah. So you wouldn't have a scenario like the peso example that you gave, where overnight, kind of from a one-to-one, it goes to a one-to-four. That just like doesn't happen, right, with Bitcoin?
2: Right. So you don't, well, you don't, you know, as the bubbles and everything else, like clearly the value can go up and down, but there isn't a quote unquote central institution. There's not in the way like one person or say eight people at the Federal Reserve, eight people at the Argentine National Bank can decide that they're going to be value the currency. The idea is that cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin are much more decentralized, that you have a lot of different actors. And I think we can talk, I'm sure later on about maybe some of the weaknesses or the ways in which that's not true.
3: One thing I would add here is I think a lot of outsiders looking in kind of get confused because Bitcoin is intended to be used as a store of value or a bit more as like a currency. A lot of people tend to conflate that with other cryptocurrencies also being meant to be used as a liquid currency, which isn't really the case. So there's two types of these. There are currencies and then there are tokens, which are like the cost of participating in a network or the cost of using whatever is offered by a particular network. So that can be anything from being used as a currency or as sort of like as like a paid API token for computing power or whatever it may be. So at like a highly abstracted level, the reason decentralization is beneficial here, both for those used as currencies and those used as tokens, is that you get the transparency and control. And the transparency side is what Taylor just explained, where you know the rules are written in code. So somebody else can't just go and change those because they're active participants who have a say in that. And the second is the control side where even if there's a network where the decision made that you disagree with, so the entire network switches over to that, you have the option to fork and create another network. You know, just like what happened with the Bitcoin fork, where there's a disagreement over how to scale the network and now there are two Bitcoins. So you do get that element of control even in scenarios where you don't agree with the direction the network is taking. But the most important thing though is that you actually know this up front because the rules are written in code. So you won't wake up one day to hear about yelling, pulling some lever at the Fed that was either unexpected or is not beneficial to you for you know whatever reason.
0: What about it makes that possible, right? Because I think with fiat currency, you've got the government controlling it in the examples you gave, whether it's the dollar or the Argentine peso. And so there must be some limitation on existing currencies where they can't, or at least existing currencies have always relied on a government. So what is it about? Bitcoin, I guess, in particular in this case, that allows it to be completely decentralized like this?
3: I think it's because those rules are, you know, again, they're written in stone, right? Uh, Written in code. So they are unchangeable. And those rules enforce the fact that it's decentralized. It splits the authority amongst all the participants in the network.
0: So why can't one person just make more Bitcoins? Yeah, I'll take a hack at the why can't someone create more Bitcoins question. We'll see how
2: I do. So I think one of the important things to understand is... What the blockchain is, and so in the case of Bitcoin, the blockchain is a ledger, like you'd have a bookkeeping ledger for any company. It's a record of all the transactions that happened. So, for like, as Dill mentioned, you have uh, starting I think 2008, Satoshi creates the Bitcoin protocol, and then people started to mine Bitcoins. And uh, without getting into technical details, basically, what mining is is you run this. Algorithm, this technically called a cryptographic hash function, I believe, to determine what the last, in the case of Bitcoin, the last 10 minutes of transactions were. So historically, one of the problems with cryptocurrency had been called the double spending problem. So, you know, let's say I have one Bitcoin. There was nothing that would stop me from saying, you know, I'm going to send Neil one Bitcoin and I'm going to send Nat one Bitcoin. And it could be the same Bitcoin. How do you prevent that double spending problem? And so the idea behind Bitcoin was you would have a network that secured this ledger, and that ledger itself is the blockchain. And I think we could probably go into that more, but as it relates to like producing more Bitcoin, the way Bitcoin actually gets created is every 10 minutes, there's a reward, a Bitcoin reward given to one of the miners that is helping to secure this ledger. So I think right now the reward is either 10 or 20 bitcoins. I want to say it's 20. Um, so every 10 minutes, some computer wins this basically kind of lottery. They guess the right answer and they get 20 bitcoins. So an entry goes into the ledger. Let's say Nat is a miner that says Nat finished this block. Nat gets 20 bitcoins. And so from then on, you know, if you want to send one of those bitcoins to Neil, You send that Bitcoin to Neil, and that gets recorded in the ledger. But there's no way to just add Bitcoins to the ledger. The only way Bitcoins are, quote unquote, created is as this mining reward. And then they can be sent around. The ledger, then the blockchain, then records them being transferred from one participant to other participants of the
1: network. Interesting. So Taylor, one thing I took, or at least I think you were maybe alluding to, were there other attempts at cryptocurrencies before Bitcoin? And was Bitcoin just like the first one, I guess, that got mainstream, any kind of mainstream adoption? Or because you mentioned a problem that previous ones had had.
2: There were. So there was a movement called, I think they called themselves the Cyberpunks or the Cypherpunks, like uh, Cypher as in like a cryptographic Cypher. And apparently there was this now kind of like infamous listserv, just like group email list of. You know, very smart people who worked in cybersecurity in some way or the other that in their spare time were kind of creating different test cryptographic protocols. I think there was one called eGold. And then I think there was another one that was, uh, someone created the proposition, uh, Nick Zabo for BitGold. I don't think it ever actually got coded, but he kind of like wrote the white paper for, you know, if someone coded this, this is how it would work. So there were some earlier attempts and. There were a few problems with them. One of the main ones being the double spending problem. And Bitcoin has become yeah so well-known and valuable and everything else because it seems to have solved all those major
1: problems. Interesting. And I know earlier you guys were both talking about, you know, this is specifically for Bitcoin. So obviously there's other kinds of cryptocurrencies as well. Who actually is creating like, is it like tomorrow, Taylor, you can say like, well, I want to go create a cryptocurrency Like, does anybody basically have the power to go create a cryptocurrency? Because obviously, you know, not everybody has the ability to go create like a new government backed currency, right? So I guess, talk to me about that a little bit. I mean, I've heard a lot of other ones, but I don't quite know, like, what's behind each of those. I mean, Neil, if we wanted to create a
3: cryptocurrency, uh, we could start one tomorrow, right? Again, it would be about like, you know, we're writing the rules, we have to get people to participate in the network and see the value in the network. It kind of sounds like a simpleton answer, but that really is just about all there is to it. Like we could go right now during this podcast, fork Bitcoin, make a copy of the Bitcoin network and make some modifications, put it out there. And if we can evangelize it and get people to be convinced that it has value, then they participate and it has value. It really is. uh,
1: So that's really interesting. So I don't know a lot about cryptocurrencies, but I I mean, I, I know a decent amount about currencies, right? In general. So basically like in the dollar has value because the US government basically says that it has value and that what, all the force behind the US government basically is behind that dollar bill in your wallet. And in this case, right, there's no entity, but it sounds like it's the fact that people want to use it and people think that it's valuable, that it has value. Well, it, right? it also So if we go create one, cur- but nobody wants it, then it wouldn't matter.
3: Even the US currency one is backed in the belief of people, right, because they believe that the US currency can back it up. Like if Zimbabwe came back and they were like, hey, this thing has value,
1: no one really believes that, so. Right, that's totally true, yeah. No, that makes sense. But in
3: both cases, it it really boils down to people participating and using.
1: Got it. Yes. So going back to what you were saying about we could go create a cryptocurrency. If we go create one, inherently, like if nobody wanted to use it, it basically wouldn't have any value. Exactly. Okay. Got it.
0: But what's the difference, uh, deal between that actually creating a currency and what we've started to see more of recently, which is these tokens or app coins?
3: Yeah. So the tokens you can think of as like a paid API token where... You're trying to access some kind of computing service, and that service has a cost. So this actually the same abstraction actually applies to Bitcoin, where the participants in the network are running these hash functions to make the transactions possible, and they get this reward, right? So in the case of other networks, when they you know run whatever it is they're running, instead of doing it to power a currency, they may be doing it you know, as Ethereum claims, the supercomputer. There are others that are decentralized VPNs, whatever it may be. But it is ultimately a system of incentives for people to participate in the network. So the token is the method of transaction on each network. So what's an example of that? So let's say that I have some extra storage space on my computer, right? So there's this new Filecoin ICO coming out. In that case, I can contribute the storage space. Actually, I'm not sure if this applies to Filecoin. I haven't really been... Let's just say that there is a coin that's like a decentralized Dropbox, right? And if I have extra storage space on my computer or I have like an extra external hard disk, I can connect this thing to the network where I'm contributing storage space. And in exchange, I am compensated in the token that that network relies on, so that could be, you know, for Filecoin, I guess it would be Filecoin. If I'm contributing, there's a really exciting project I saw recently called Source Wi-Fi, where it's a mesh Wi-Fi network where you can have one of their routers, and then when you're not using the extra bandwidth, you can actually contribute that to make like a citywide mesh network, being one of the nodes. And in exchange for contributing your bandwidth, people pay you using their source token. So it really, is just as simple as a transaction where I provide whatever it may be, disk space, bandwidth computing power towards the caching function for Bitcoin. And in exchange, I'm compensated with the token that the network relies on.
0: But why would we want to use a special token for the network instead of just dollars in our credit cards? Like, what's the point? That's what, actually
3: a great question. Because you can programmatically determine how that gets allocated. And I guess it gets a little bit more complicated for the recent wave of ICOs because they're also used as a fundraising mechanism. But at its core, it's basically this is something that you can control the rules and how it gets delegated.
2: Well, let me—I I can add a couple points to that. Uh, I'm reasonably—I read the Filecoin white paper. And I think yeah, if you think about it like as a decentralized Dropbox or decentralized Amazon Web Services, that's a good analogy. So my understanding of how Filecoin—and as far as I know, they haven't written the code. This is just the white paper. But there's two main services that are provided. There's storage and retrieval. So you have some extra computer, you have some extra space on your hard drive. So you have 10 extra gigabytes. Um, You can say, hey, I'll host your data on my hard drive and you get paid in these file coin tokens, a very small percentage or, you know, you get paid for whatever amount of data you're holding. So I think the, as I understand it, like the idea is it adds this incentive mechanism where, you know, imagine if you were one of the first drivers of Uber, and every time you took a ride on an Uber, or every time you drove someone, you got a small chunk of equity in Uber that was then valued at, you know, whatever, $50 million. And at the end of it, you owned 0.2% or whatever of Uber that became worth $50 billion. So there's kind of this like economic incentive Layer on top, which makes people go, huh, you know, like, okay, if I run a company and we've got all this extra storage space laying around, we could contribute this, and you know, potentially this is going to be the next, you know, Filecoin is going to be the next Amazon Web Services, and we're going to own 0.2% of Amazon Web Services, which would be you know a very profitable investment, given that you're just using kind of like extra storage space
0: laying around. That makes a ton of sense. There's another element here that I just want to throw in is the ability to do those microtransactions. That's like almost impossible with credit cards, right? If you want to do little 10 cent payments constantly, credit cards are sort of prohibitively expensive for doing that just because there's going to be like a few cents minimum fee for processing the transaction plus a percentage of whatever you're transferring. But for all of these coins, they can be moved around basically for free, for no transaction cost, especially with the tokens, And so then it's just whenever you want to cash it out, you might have to pay a small fee, but nothing close to what a lose to credit card processing fees. That's another benefit to it, right?
3: There are transaction costs. It also depends on the network. But in Ether, it's called actually, I believe it's called gas on Ether. Basically, it is the cost of moving that stuff around because it does whenever you move it around, it has to be recorded on the ledger. And now there are these side chains. And that's I think we can dive into that later. But when you're assuming like one blockchain and every transaction being recorded, it does require computing power. So there is a small fee. But like you said, Nat, it is one of the things they actually outline specifically in the Bitcoin white paper is that it is much better for
1: microtransactions, because despite any kind of a network fee, it's significantly lower than what you have with a credit card. Well, and then you don't have any of like the administrative costs, right, that come along with having a company managing something like there's no sort of central company doing this it's fully distributed onto a network. So there's just the computing cost. There's not like the admin cost, at least from what I'm gathering from what you guys are saying. That's correct, yeah. Because where is when you pay like Visa, right? Like Visa has people who work for them and all the things that come along with that.
2: One of the ways I've started to think about it is you think about what the internet did, is it, it lowered transaction costs a lot, which like sounds kind of boring. But the interesting thing about that is it enables all these new business models. So you think about like the idea of a lifestyle business Like the example I always think of is like these niche marketing agencies. Like I do marketing for this specific type of chiropractor or whatever. You couldn't do that in kind of the brick and mortar world, right? Because the customer acquisition costs, like, you know, you're flying around, you got to go to all these different cities, you got to find all these chiropractors. It just, it doesn't work. You know, the plane ticket is a transaction cost. You know, sending out the physical mail to all of them is a transaction cost. But all of a sudden, you have Google, and you write ten articles for SEO, or you use Google AdWords to advertise, saying, for when someone searches "how to market my special chiropractic," kind of you can all of a sudden identify those people. Those transaction costs have gone down, so it, it seems like cryptocurrency is going to do is kind of enable these new use cases that just weren't feasible before because of the transaction cost. You know, like you think of the idea of like a. A super personalized mortgage that you could have like a a mortgage smart contract, which customize a mortgage to you in the same way like that you have a custom marketing agency for a niche chiropractic business.
1: Oh, I was going to say, what is like, what are these customized contracts? So I know, well, I don't actually know that much, but you've talked about it a couple of times. I think both of you guys have. So what's like this contract aspect of these cryptocurrencies? Like the mortgage example is a really good one. Like I'd be curious to learn more about that.
2: Yeah. So Nick Zabo, who um, I believe his blog is unenumerated.blogspot.com, but he's one of the smarter people in the space. And he was kind of one of the original members of that Cypher listserv and has been writing about cryptocurrency basically for like almost two decades or something, a very long time. And so his idea or his term is you think of wet code and dry code. So wet code is kind of like our current legal system. So like we have certain laws and then lawyers interpret those and judges rule on them. And that's that's how contracts work now. So, you know, if I write a contract, you know, Neil, you and me, we create a contract saying, you know, I'm going to write uh, an article for you and you're going to pay me $100. I you mean, know, we would write this up in the contract. We would both sign the contract. And then, you know, if I didn't write the article, theoretically, you could sue me for breach of contract. Take it to court and yada yada. So that kind of like legal system is wet code, right? And the idea behind these smart contracts is that you can turn that wet code into dry code. So instead of, you know, you sending me over a PDF with written contract on it and I sign it and then the legal system mediates that contract, we would have a smart contract embedded in the blockchain which is actual code. And it just says, if on this date, a post with Taylor Pearson's author identification in WordPress goes live on Neil's site, then Neil pays Taylor $100. And you could actually write that in like the scripting language of the code as opposed to doing it legally. And of course, like in this example, you know, if I defaulted on that contract, you would never sue me because the cost of the lawsuit would be so much. It's cheaper to just not deal with it. Right. But with a smart contract, if it's two lines of code or whatever, and I think I mean eventually there'll be ways to do it for people that don't code, you could potentially do those much smaller transactions in a much more secure way. That's really,
1: really
3: cool. I mean, an important thing that Taylor just said that I think is worth highlighting is there has to be some kind of independent mediator, typically programmatic, that determines whether you fulfilled your side of the contract or not, right? So one of the two parties involved could not dispute it the way you would In the traditional system where you could go and take it to court or whatever it may be, or declare fraud on the transaction, whatever it may be that you do today. Instead, it would have to be programmatic where either there'd be a trusted third party or there'd be some kind of an API. Let's say if we have a gamble on the weather tomorrow, right? We have to agree when we write the smart contract what weather API to use to determine who was correct. So it's really important that the person determining whether the transaction was completed, whether the contract was fulfilled, is not either of the parties involved, something that's concrete and agreed upon beforehand. Got
1: it.
2: Yeah. And I think the way it's going to play out, I think is like, you're going to have wet and dry code mixed. So like uh, to build on a deals example, I think one of the common use cases now is for sports betting. So like you would plug into the ESPN API and it's like, you know if the Steelers beat the Eagles, then Taylor pays Neil $500. And so we're agreeing to Follow whatever ESPN says happened in the game. Like you can't come back and say, well, actually, you know, this call was BS and the game should have gone the other way. So ESPN, the term I understand is the oracle. ESPN is the oracle in the scenario. And like that's, that in a sense is wet, right? So they're not, it's not programmatic that if ESPN colludes and everyone decides that they're going to lie about who wins the game, then theoretically that could happen. So that's, that's where the risk enters in. But the idea is there's less overall risk.
1: Okay, here's like an edge case, right? Like so at a actual sports game, like there's times where there's, I mean, for lack of a better word, a momentary typo on the score. So let's say like that happened on the ESPN example. Let's say they accidentally like it was like 42 to 35 Steelers, right? But they accidentally typed it in wrong for a second, right? They immediately correct it, but it triggers something in the API. Like, is there an edge case there where it would pay out incorrectly? Like, because there's still that human layer of somebody is putting the score in. So there would be, there could be typos.
3: I mean, that is always possible if there is human error involved, because yep. the, one of the important things with these kinds of transactions is that they're not reversible. They're immutable. Once that's, it's done, so it's that's done. That's I was
1: going. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, if that happened in Vegas and someone's making a bet at a sports book, like, you can't make the argument to the Vegas casino that, oh, well, momentarily, right, it said the Eagles had won. Like, they're not going to pay out, right, off of that. Yeah. Well, that's part of the thinking that goes
3: into picking the Oracle, right? That's why you pick ESPN instead of, I don't know, let's say your drunk friend has a programmatic API, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So you're basically agreeing on the thing beforehand, and then whatever that says triggers whatever else, what the outcome would be, like who gets paid out where.
2: Yeah. Like to go back to the mortgage example, like, you know, you could have a clause that you refinance the mortgage every year based on whatever the auditor says. So like, so are the appraiser says, so the appraiser is going to come in there and like, that's the wet part of that transaction. Right. So like there's a programmatic thing that you can refinance, but like the appraiser is going to look at the house and he's a person, you know, liable to all the same human mistakes. Everyone else is. And, you know, If he's having a bad day, maybe it's worth $10,000 less than if he's having a good day. But the system already works that way. So it's not dramatically different.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And then you're you're basically not dealing with the closing costs, right? Of that refinancing every single time you want to go do it. It's just, it's already built in.
2: Right. Then what a lot of you're paying with those closing costs is you're paying some determine cryptocurrency is trusted third party, but like in this case, a bank, you know, there's someone, there's a back office team and there's someone sitting at the bank that you talk to and like, they all have salaries and they have downtown office space that's very expensive and yada, yada, yada. So you could cut out all those costs.
1: Okay. Actually, so that's a really interesting, um, there was a, a one of the questions that I particular had is this idea of doing a business kind of cross border because of, so, and it ties to the banking example. Um, I had... With my company, there was a project we were exploring in the UK a few months ago, and there were like three vendors we had to pay in the UK from our US bank account and then collect payment from a company in the UK. And I basically had to get very, very creative to basically one of the vendors agreed to take payment for all of them and then pay it out. And I was able to put that transaction on a credit card with no foreign transaction fee. And then to get paid, there was a wire transfer cost that the client paid. So basically, I was able to avoid fees, but the fact that the fees existed in the first place was very interesting to me, considering all the transactions were electronic. So in with these cryptocurrencies, at least one use case that I've heard of in the past is it gives you the ability to transact cross-border without paying those types of transaction fees beyond anything, what you already said, the computing power and that. But there's no sort of entity like a bank that's going to be adding a wire transfer fee because it's not like it goes through a wire, right? Like it's so, yeah. it's just electronic money being moved from one account to the other
3: there are no borders it's just if you have a computer and you connect to the network one thing i do want to add on the smart contracts note is this enforces the trustlessness you'll hear that word a lot cryptocurrencies where if i let's say i make a bet in person at a party part of the bet is a trust that the person will pay off their side of it if they lose and if they don't i'm not going to like taylor said i'm not going to take someone to court over like a fifty dollar bet You don't have to trust anyone when you write up a smart contract. It can be a deviant, and when the code executes, there's nothing they can do about it. So it basically opens the possibilities for a number of different kinds of transactions that you otherwise may not be able to do in the real world. Or you'd have to do with a little bit more difficulty or risk. Interesting.
0: I do want to come back to the international commerce topic, because I think that that is one of the cool applications. And one of the things that I have heard is about how Bitcoin and I suppose other cryptocurrencies can really help with accelerating banking development and just like financial systems development in developing countries. So do either of you know much about that?
2: Yeah. So I don't understand the particulars there, but going back to what we were saying earlier about just reducing transaction costs. Like if you're setting up a bank account for someone, Generally, have, there's like some minimum on the bank account because, like, if you're a bank, you have someone has to set the bank account. They have to walk in again to your office that you pay rent on the real estate. There's all these costs that are associated. And so you think about transaction costs just being much lower. You could take someone with a lot less money to deposit and have them still be able to set them up with a bank account where they could get the benefits of being able to save money and use banking services, but with a lot less initial
0: capital. And then, what about sending money across borders? Because this is another issue I've heard, is that right now, if you're, you know, say your family is in Guatemala, but you're working in the U.S., it's actually very difficult to send money back. But these kinds of currencies could make that process way easier, right? Yeah, so I think
2: that's going to be one of the early big Use cases because it was Neil was talking about paying the vendors in England like so yeah you have to pay some third party like PayPal to send that money and they're going to take some fee whereas if you pay them in Bitcoin you just pay whatever the transaction costs on the network is which might be I want to say when I last sent Bitcoin it was like uh, three dollars or something so if you're sending someone a ten thousand dollar transfer the difference between paying PayPal three percent versus paying three dollars that's a huge cost savings.
1: You're totally right about that. Because the example that you know I was thinking about for my business was a, it was a marketplace example. And our margin is about 30% per project. But in this case, right, if we went down the normal ways of transferring money internationally, we would have had like virtually no margin. I mean, we would have had a little bit, but it's like the way that they were charging it was a, a flat rate, at least the bank that we were using and the vendors bank was doing it. There was a fee for us to be the ones to transfer it and then when we would receive we weren't going to be charged a fee but it's like you know if you're making like two three hundred bucks and then you're paying like a hundred dollars of fees that's not sustainable now granted if we were actually doing business in the uk more often right we would set all that up locally but my point i guess was more of they're not actually moving like it's not like they're shipping the dollars from the uk to the u.s right it's like they are just playing around with code at the end of the day like they're just moving it from one account to the other
2: Right. So coming back to this idea of like these lower transaction costs kind of enable new business models or new solutions that you just, they just weren't economically feasible before the same way the internet let, you know, like a niche chiropractic marketing agency made that an economically viable proposition. And this is, I guess, to tie that in, actually, I'm just making this connection now, Kevin Kelly's idea of a thousand true fans, which was kind of this flagship article for this idea of independent creators that, you know, you could have a relationship directly with your customers. If you're a musician, you you have a relationship directly with your customers. And because, you know, in the past, if you're a musician, you have to get paid through a record label and they pay you. 10% of all album sales say I don't know much about the music industry, you have to sell a lot of albums in order to make a full time living doing that. So I kind of the promise of the internet was, well, you know, you could sell 10 times less albums because you make 100% of the profit because there's no intermediary between you and them. But with the internet, what played out is these kind of walled gardens came up right that you know typically now you say if you 're a musician, you have to sell your music through some centralized marketplace, like you know iTunes or whatever, and Apple gets their cut uh, so there 's kind of this new intermediary, and I think the kind of the promise or one of the exciting things about cryptocurrency is you could kind of actually have this thousand true fans thing play out more directly, right? Where there's not a big third party in the middle taking 30, 50, whatever percent of the, the cut on the way. It's just going directly from it's peer to peer directly from one individual to
1: another individual. So how is this going to like affect tech companies and stuff in the future? Cause like, as you're saying that it's like not just banks, right. That are, this sort of trusted third party space where things congregate. Like, how does that affect non banking companies or things like that? I think the trade off I see is it's a convenience versus control thing.
3: So, using the example of something like Bitcoin versus, say, you know, banking with Citibank, for the average person, the convenience of using something with like Citibank where they make all the decisions, you kind of play by their rules, and assuming you don't have crazy needs, it kind of gets the job done, right? It's similar to what Taylor just said about like, distributing, let's say like a podcast on the iTunes store as opposed to trying to do it, or maybe not a podcast, what's so like a paid good, like an app or you know, music on the iTunes store as opposed to trying to doing it yourself, right? There's this convenience. Whereas when you think about something like Bitcoin, let's say that you're trying to move into you know using Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency as opposed to using any kind of an established banking system, you have significantly more control. There are all these benefits we've discussed, but the convenience factor Is I mean it's way harder to securely and confidently, especially for the average banker or you know average person participating in the system. Much more difficult to secure bitcoins, move that stuff around, and the convenience factor is really low. So I think what I'm hoping to see over the next few years is these tech companies leveraging tokens and blockchains when necessary. Right, something we see now with a lot of these ICOs is they don't need tokens; their tech or product offering just. Is not improved by this kind of technology but i'm hoping to see where they, what these companies do they jump on this opportunity to take the control that you get from blockchain enabled products and they make it as convenient and as easy to use as you would uh you know facebook or your bank or whatever it is right now where central authorities are involved and then the incentive for these companies to do this would then be you know if they're participants in the network you basically have this equity stake in the form of the token so it can still be a profitable endeavor. And it kind of gives the user the control or security or whatever benefit they may want. But in its current forms, if you, when you look at a lot of these blockchain-enabled products, it's just not palatable to the everyday person who isn't technical. They don't care about blockchains, and they don't care about cryptocurrency token sale methods. And they just want like whatever the tangible benefit is, whether that's control or security or uptime or whatever that may be, or saving money because there's no central authority. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to see over the next couple of years is this tech becoming a lot more palatable. It kind of disappearing into the background. I liken it a lot to something like Siri, where, you know, the average person just knows you press the home button down and you talk to Siri. But there's a lot going on in the background, you know, with natural language processing, sending packets to the Apple server, encrypting that information. But when they market it, they don't talk about that side. And that's basically how the the future of these blockchain-enabled products should look when talking to the average consumer.
2: And in theory... It could be disruptive to like existing tech incumbents. So like, you know, in theory, you could have a. And I agree, it's like not. We're not there yet in terms of kind of the convenience factor, but like you could have a crypto Uber where uh, drivers are, well, maybe they get paid a little bit less or there's less usage on that app than Uber, but they'll leave it open anyway because, well, you know, if they end up doing some rides on it and it becomes a big thing, you've got this incentive for it. they would own a piece of the network. They would be earning crypto Uber coins. And so there's this economic incentive. So like in theory, you could have all these kind of like sharing economy companies, but in a decentralized cryptocurrency version or there's a there's a site called Steam right now that's basically the cryptocurrency version of Reddit. So instead of like getting upvotes that earn you karma, which is you know just like gold stars or whatever, you actually make money. So if you write a very popular post and everyone upvotes it, uh, you actually earn Steam, the name of their cryptocurrency, and that Steam can be transferred and redeemed for dollars at this point.
0: There's also this possibility for decentralized autonomous organizations, right? Do either of you guys know much about the potential there?
2: I can extend the Uber examples. The idea of a decentralized autonomous organization is you don't actually have to have humans that are making the decisions. So like, you could technically have a deal, correct me if I'm going off the rails here, like you could have a car, a self-driving car, which had... It was programmed, right? So to like when fuel goes below X, then refill. You could actually like, you know, this decentralized autonomous organization where you just write the code for how this autonomous vehicle behaves. And it doesn't actually necessarily need to have an owner. It is autonomous, right? It's just this it's this code that behaves according to these software, the what's been written into it.
0: And then also making transactions without any human players, right? So it could drive itself to the gas station buy gas and then pay for the gas in whatever token or coin is being used then, right? So it kind of allows this potential economic communication between artificial intelligent, either physical, like things in the real world or online entities, right? Right. And you can do it at very,
2: like the idea of these very, very small transactions. Like one idea I've heard with like commuting specifically is like, you know, you imagine getting into your self-driving decentralized autonomous crypto Uber and you can say, hey, I'm like really in a hurry. I like really need to get there fast. Maybe there's a slider and that you drag the slider across and then your car can like make these very small transactions to all the cars in front of it, paying it to let them skip them in line. Or if you're not in much of a hurry, you could, you know, set it to a much lower thing and maybe your ride is much cheaper because, um, you know, all everyone that wants to go fast is passing you and paying you these very tiny transactions.
1: That's pretty cool. Cause that's not really something that you can do. Like seemingly this is that kind of use case is totally enabled by a cryptocurrency.
2: Right. You have to be able to do these tiny, tiny transactions.
0: That's really cool. So one of the distinctions that we've kind of touched on a couple of times now, but not discussed straight out is this difference between protocols and apps. And there's Bitcoin, the coin, but then there's also Bitcoin, the protocol, and there's Ethereum, the protocol. So what's the difference between protocols and applications? And why is all this cryptocurrency stuff so exciting in terms of where it falls on that distinction? So with Bitcoin, the distinction is a bit confusing because the protocol
2: itself is called Bitcoin. And then usually the protocol is spelled with a capital B. And then the token itself is also Bitcoin, usually with a lowercase b. In the case of Ethereum, the protocol itself is called Ethereum with a capital E. And then the token itself is called Ether, usually with a lowercase e. So they are two distinct things. Like in the case of Ethereum, when you talk about Ethereum, you talk about like the network, and the whole thing when you talk about ether you're talking about this individual token which in the case of ethereum is used to it's that's how you buy compute power on the network so if you have go back to our mortgage example you have a mortgage that you want to write a smart contract for on the ethereum network in order to execute that smart contract in order to actually run it you have to pay the network for that compute power and you do that through ether so the idea behind The ultimate value of these coins, like right now, it's mostly speculative. No no one's actually, as far as I know, no one's actually like getting their mortgage done on a smart contract. But in theory, like you'll have companies that will do this in the future and they will need to own Ether in order to run that. And now the Bitcoin Ethereum analogy that I found helpful is you think about Bitcoin as digital gold. It's an actual store of value. Like you don't actually use the gold that like you don't go to the store and like save off a bar of your gold. If you want to buy a Diet Coke or whatever, it's just a store of value. Whereas Ethereum is more like digital oil and Ether is like the oil. So like there are people who invest in oil. They're just like speculating on the price of oil. Like will it go up or will it go down? But then there are actually companies who like have to buy the oil to make gasoline or to like run whatever industrial processes they're doing that require oil.
1: That's the best analogy I've ever heard for Ethereum. <laughs> like I've heard it explained a couple other ways, and every single other time I was just like, uh, I don't think I get it, but the oil one makes so much sense. That makes so much sense.
0: So does that mean that as the price of Ethereum is going up, all of the apps that use Ethereum are going to become more expensive to run?
2: Right. So there's... I think what we'll see happen is similar to what are the ideas? It'll be similar to the dot-com bubble. In some ways, the increasing cost of the protocol is making actually building apps on the protocol less feasible, hence decreasing the value of the protocol. So like, and it's like as the speculative value goes up, the intrinsic value goes down. So it, you'll have, you know, the bubble will pop, so to speak, and the actual cost of the currency will go down and it'll make it more affordable. So like right now, for example, a lot of the early talk about Bitcoin was like with microtransactions. And at least right now, it's just not viable for microtransactions. A lot of people think that will go back down. But because it's so hyped and because so many people have bought the Bitcoin, that one of these like initial kind of core use cases that people thought would happen of microtransactions, uh, you can't do because you have to pay too high of a fee right now.
0: Just because the cost of Bitcoin is so high? Right. Got it. So what are some of the other challenges that this space is facing right now? And we could talk about for specific coins and specific protocols or just the whole cryptocurrency space in general. What's like holding it back?
3: Uh, there's a few things that I see. I'm just kind of going on a laundry list because I haven't thought about them in any particular order. So things that are holding cryptocurrencies and blockchain things back. There's a few sides. One is, like Taylor just explained, the cost of participating in the network. Or the cost of using whatever is offered. So you'll see with Ethereum, the price is going up. A lot of the folks who I expect will end up actually using Ethereum for compute power will be enterprise companies where they, they just have to because there are you know other benefits that they can't get either from whatever they'd be using previously. And as a result, they're a little bit the demand's a bit more inelastic. You know, they're kind of willing to pay, up to a certain degree, of course. And then you know, the enterprise Ethereum Alliance is kind of the group that's like pulling these people together. They have like some 80, 90 companies signed up to build on the Ethereum blockchain and use Ethereum. So that's one side, but then there's the consumer-facing side, which I described earlier, where the average consumer is just not going to use these products. And a lot of the things that are ICOing right now are claiming or you know, they're hoping to become consumer-grade applications. And it's just not going to happen unless they change the way they're talking and marketing their products. I actually find this to be one of the greatest ironies that no one really seems to be talking about, which is these companies need to start hiring marketers. They need to start hiring people that are going to be able to talk to the people they actually want to sell to. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know, hackers and crypto nerds that are using these supposedly consumer-grade apps. So I think that's one problem. Another challenge is the effect that regulation may have. It doesn't seem likely in the short term that people will be moving all their fiat into a cryptocurrency and using that as their day-to-day drivers, which means you're going to have to be moving money back and forth. And there's going to be regulations on how you can use that money, how you can move that money. So that's another very big challenge actually. You know, recently we just saw this big price drop after some news came out of China where they were shutting down some exchanges. You know, this kind of stuff especially when the interest is so speculative has a pretty big impact on the price and you know kind of the future of the network. So regulation I see is going to be a pretty big challenge. And lastly, there's this is probably more of a problem now because there's so much speculation and press, but frankly a lot of what we see ICOing just these companies don't need to be leveraging blockchain technology. They don't need to be using a token. And you know, one of my kind of concerns as this stuff approaches the mainstream is if a lot of these companies are building this stuff right now because of the hype and possibly and more likely as like a fundraising mechanism and not leveraging the technology properly, then in the future it kind of gives this stuff a bad name, right? It makes it a little bit more difficult for it to feel like the honest, open system that it was supposed to be. And I, I see that as a big problem as well. And it's really hard. I try to follow this stuff pretty closely, especially as far as ICOs go. And it gets sometimes it gets difficult to recognize where a token is actually necessary and where the company actually benefits from ICOing. And given the rate of ICOs and just how much money is moving in, that's I guess this ties into the regulation side. Is people are just not using technology where they need to be, and a lot of money is moving in. You know, Nat, you actually said this, but I, and I totally believe it. Where this ICO bubble could very easily be the next tech bubble. It's just so much money moving in, and so many of the projects are hot air. Some of them are excellent projects, but I'd say the vast majority are pretty much hot air. And with all that money moving in and the potential that nothing will materialize, the whole space could end up being heavily regulated, which would then hamper its chances to actually you know, to actually build useful things on this technology if the cost of doing so goes up.
1: Yeah. Um, actually, a Adil, this sort of started to come up on one of the other episodes, the Sovereign Individual episode. Um, so if anyone hasn't listened to that, go check that one out. But yeah, I, uh, I, that was one of my biggest questions was actually around regulation and governments. It doesn't seem like something that, at least from maybe I'm still misunderstanding it, but like cryptocurrencies in general don't seem like something that governments would inherently like. It just doesn't seem easy for them to track it, tax it, do all the things that governments like to do. I mean, like governments are another source of transaction costs with taxes and things like that. So yeah, I'm just curious, like, do you see this, like, since it's not really a centralized thing, right? Like there's no entity that the government can kind of negotiate with. So like, how does this all end? I mean, obviously we're getting into very speculative ground here, but just what's the sort of the logical end case of, of a lot of this stuff?
3: Areas where the government can jump in and try to control things from the outside, right? One example, is you're getting involved with exchanges, right? Most people aren't going to go ahead and set up a node of their own. So they're going to be participating in these networks through an exchange. And the government can pressure exchanges to give up information on who's moving money in and where is that going. And the actually irony of it is if you can identify who owns a particular address, by definition, these networks are built on public ledgers. So if you can identify an address, then the public ledger is effectively, like an address book, you can see exactly who's sending things back and forth. And the exchanges control a lot of that information. So exchanges, I I imagine, are going to be getting a lot of heat. It's already happening, actually. I believe it was the SEC that contacted Coinbase like a year or so ago and subpoenaed them to hand over a list of every single transaction. And maybe not every single transaction. Maybe it was like every single user. I may or may not be explaining it properly, but they basically subpoenaed Coinbase to hand over a ton of user data. And Coinbase initially refused. But, you know, there could be an exchange in the future that doesn't refuse, or they could be getting a lot more pressure. Uh, I don't see a feasible way in terms of like technical possibility that the government could just shut the whole thing down. I just don't see that happening. I don't think
1: that's in the realm of possibility. But there are venues like exchanges where they could get involved. So what about like the China thing that happened just now? So is that when they say, oh, we're shutting this all down? I mean, China's obviously different than the United States, but how does that actually work? Are they just basically blocking access to the actual exchange websites? What exactly are they? Or are they just making it illegal? And it's like if you're caught using one, then you get in trouble.
2: Let me touch on the Coinbase example because I think this good going before we jump to China. So yeah, the reason I believe that, that Coinbase was subpoenaed is I want to say someone told me the stats, but like a hundred people in 2016 paid taxes on their Bitcoin profits in like all of America. And like, you know, a lot more people than that made Bitcoin profits in 2016. Um, so I mean, that's exactly, that's why you would want to subpoena that, right? Because it's like, it is harder for. The government to track it. And so people are less inclined to report on their tax statement because, you know, it's more likely that they can actually get away with it. I think like the bull case or the optimistic case, I want to say it's Gandhi, but maybe it's apocryphal that the first they ignore they you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, then you win quote that kind of got uh, co opted by Silicon Valley. That's like, you know, potentially governments are just kind of ignoring you because, you know, I want to say the market cap right now is like $150 billion. So like from the point of view of a government, you know, that's like a not that big company on the S&P 500. It's like not as significant. It's just not, you know, from a, a government or even a large company's perspective, it's a really small amount of money. So like in theory, you could potentially have this thing grow where it just becomes so large that by the time government's start trying to clamp down and take action against it. There's just too much momentum, sort of in the same way, like, you know, AT&T could have throttled Google early on, but it just like, wasn't, they didn't pay any attention. It was like, why would we bother? Like what a trivial little useless application. And then by the time they realized what happened,
1: it's like, oh shit. Yeah. It's too late at that point. (laughs) Um, Taylor, actually that brings up a really good point. So you said that uh, right now the I guess overall market cap, and is that of all kind of cryptocurrencies combined or is that like specifically Bitcoin?
2: That's all cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, let's see, I can look it up right now, but Bitcoin use, it makes up maybe 40% of that. So Bitcoin's maybe 50 or $70 billion or something like that.
1: So then that's probably where a lot of the volatility comes from, right? Just the fact that if somebody goes in and if it's such a small volume and makes somebody goes and makes a you know $2 million transaction or something, that's like actually significant enough to skew the prices. Because the volume, like, it's just not like the overall market cap is just not that big.
2: Yeah. So a lot of what's happening right now is they call them whales, but like, yeah, if you have ten billion dollars, and let's say there's a bill, I'm making these numbers up, but they're probably roughly right. You know, there's five billion in cryptocurrency transactions per day you can make 50% of the transactions in the day. And so you can basically manipulate the market. So like if you're making the
1: market, it's your like, yeah, you are making. Yeah.
2: So like, if you look at like the early, early stocks, like before any of the uh, regulation came in, I think most of the regulation was after it was like the 1920s. It was either, I think it was after the, the great depression, like the guys at, JP Morgan, like the inside bank, they'd like call up all their friends and be like, Hey, let's all drive this stock up. And they like all go buy in all the stock. And then when it went double, they would go, Hey, we'll all sell it now. And they'd all sell it. And everyone else that wasn't on the know, you know, they'd buy it high and sell it low and they'd lose their money. So a lot of what's going on now is just market manipulation because I mean, there's no regulation. It's, there's no government that's or no central entity that's coming in and regulating the market.
0: It's funny you mentioned J.P. Morgan because we actually just saw that again the other day with Bitcoin specifically. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> uh, unclear if it was delivered or not, but what's their CEO's name? Jamie Dimore? Jamie Dimon. Dimon. That's right. He went on and said that Bitcoin was a scam, and then it crashed. And then a bunch of J.P. Morgan employees bought Bitcoin during the crash. If you look in the ledger, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll throw that in the show notes. But kind of a funny example of how uh, since it's not been regulated yet, that's still it's still happening.
1: Yeah, I mean to be fair that happens with stocks still too. It's just oh, a little yeah. harder. It's just a little <laughs> bit harder because they have to be a little more clever about it. But yeah, that still happens. But it's not it's not as common as probably it is with these things.
2: And at least with large cap stocks it's hard. Like right? if you want to like manipulate the stock price of Apple, you just have to have so much money. Yeah,
1: you just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's more with like penny stocks and like Things like that, where if an analyst comes in, like the value of the company triples like that day (laughs) or the other way around, like it gets a downgrade and the whole company is basically worth a third of what it was yesterday, even though there's no tangible difference besides the analyst recommendation because there's such little volume. Interesting. Yeah. So then I guess it's some combination of regulation that's going to be necessary, then What about like, just the overall market cap increasing? Like, how do you see that playing out in the future? Like, is that going to increase as there's more and more of these use cases? Or like, what's going to drive that increase of market cap to make the currency more stable? So at least the
2: way I'm thinking about it is you think about, all right, I'm looking at the market cap now, as of this recording, it's $140 billion. So of that market cap, some percentage of it is speculative value and some percentage of it is what you call like utility value. So like if you were using Bitcoin, say you're really rich, the son of a duke from England and used to keep a bunch of money in gold, but you buy this premise that Bitcoin is actually a better store of value than gold and you're bought a bunch of Bitcoin and you're now holding that Bitcoin because you're using it as this store of value of part of your family's wealth. So that would be like utility value. Like you're actually using it for a clear purpose. The other thing is like speculative value, which is like probably what most of us are doing, uh, is like, huh, you know, this thing, Bitcoin is now $4,000 and maybe it's going to be half a million dollars in 20 years. You know, if I buy a little bit now, it's going to go up a ton in price and I'll make a ton of profits. So I think like right now of the overall market cap, like it's overwhelmingly speculative. It's like not actual use cases. You know, like the the value of Ethereum is $27 billion right now. And it's not like there's not a lot of companies that are actually using Ethereum in the way You know, if you compare it to the oil market, like most of oil's prices is driven by supply and demand. It's like companies that actually, you know, I need to buy oil because I run a plastics manufacturer and like we need oil to manufacture our products. Whereas most of Ethereum at this point is just like oh, this looks really cool. And I heard a podcast about it and I went out and bought some <laughs> and like now the price goes up.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, but I mean, to be fair, like a lot of value of startups or other companies, right, is based on speculation of what their product will be used for in the future.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think there's like a real, uh, there's a book called Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez, um, which I highly recommend for anyone interested in this stuff. But she talks about there's uh, typically two phases in any technology life cycle. So she looks back at like first industrial revolution, second industrial revolution. She has one other one. I can't remember how she delineates the periods. But you typically have this period of kind of like financial exuberance when all the financial capital flows in before – uh, there's actual much like hard tech there, but that's like a very important phase because like, why is everyone talking about cryptocurrency right now? It's like, because 12 months ago, the market was worth $30 billion and now it's worth $140 billion. And everyone that bought it 12 months ago is like, you know, up 500% in 12 months. And everyone's was like, Whoa, that's cool. I'd love to make 500% of my money in 12 months. Uh, and so it drives a lot of interest in the space, which I, you know, it also causes these big bubbles, right? Like we saw with the tech bubble in 99, but like, you know, unlike, if you want to contrast the tech bubble in 99 with, say, the, the financial collapse in 2008, the tech bubble in 99 created a lot of value, right? It got a lot of people interested in the internet. It started internet companies. It drove people out to Silicon Valley. It created a lot of uh, companies and products that ended up actually overall being beneficial for large portions of the world, whereas like, you know, just like pure financial manipulation, like what happened in 2008, like, no one's better off, like, there was no like innovation that was being funded there. Like, it was just a bunch of guys playing with BS numbers and contracts, and just like extracting wealth, like I see that as like pure rent seeking, whereas like this sort of speculation is in a way like it actually seems like it will probably drive net societal benefit technological progress in the long run.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if you look at a lot of the 90s tech bubble companies that went bust, it's like, the ideas weren't necessarily bad, like a lot of those ideas are back, right? It's just like, they might have been too early, like, you know, obviously, valuations got a little bit out of control. But like, it doesn't mean as exactly as you said, like what they were working on was not beneficial at the end, you know, at some level. And yeah, some people lost money, you know, a lot of people lost money, but it's like it was money that was a invested seem I mean, I would imagine everyone who invested, at least as a private investor, not as when these companies went public, but pre that. And still when somebody invests in a startup, you go in thinking that it's very possible it'll go to zero. That's like the name of the game. When it's on a public market, it's obviously a little different than mutual funds and things like that get involved, but yeah, like Taylor, and deal as well. Are you guys seeing people go into cryptocurrencies with the idea that, you know, it won't go down? Because I know like when I think about it, I think about it like, oh, it can go like very likely I'm not going to make money because I don't understand fully what's underneath it. So I don't put money in that I can't afford to lose. I'm curious, are you guys seeing people look at it the other way where they think it's only going to go up?
3: I mean, there's a bit of both crowds. I think a lot, at least a lot of people that I'm surrounded by are pretty aware that, it's a bubble and that in the short term, there'll probably be a price correction, potentially Uh a very big price correction. If you guys have ever seen online the hodl, I don't even know that's how you pronounce it, but hodlers are the ones like hold long-term and virtually everybody I know is long on cryptos, even though they accept that in the short term, there'll probably be a pretty big price correction, which is why you'll see, you know, everyone's talking about like buy the dip, buy the dip. And I I would probably put myself in that group as well, where I think there's a lot of long-term value to be made. But again, there's a risk we discussed earlier. There are people who genuinely believe that we might not be in a bubble. And, you know, occasionally I've actually played with that idea as well as like, you know, what if we are not in a bubble? What if this is just a crawl up to mainstream? But uh, it's a bit of crazy thinking, I think, especially with what's going on with ICOs. I think it's pretty clear that a lot of the money here, a lot of the value is going to disappear when things don't materialize.
0: There's probably a distinction to be made there between total market bubble versus like Bitcoin bubble. And we can even say Ethereum is separate too, right? Because one thing could be a bubble while the other one might not be. I think one of the things we've seen to a certain degree is like Litecoin, for example, tends to stay a bit more stable where you'll have like Bitcoin fluctuate a lot more Wildly <laughs> sometimes. I mean, we saw it drop 40% over the last like week or two, right? So we could be in one of those corrections right now.
3: Litecoin also dropped about 40% in the same time period. I think it doesn't feel as crazy because the numbers are smaller, but it did drop from 80 bucks to like 50 or so around the same time that Bitcoin dropped approximately the same percent. I am probably not too qualified to speculate on this, but just based on what I've seen, I haven't necessarily tracked this too closely, but anecdotally it seems like a lot of the prices follow each other you know ethereum also dropped rapidly over the last week after the bitcoin china news it's not it's not always clear why things move up and down and i think a big reason why occasionally the prices seem correlated is because people are just in this in a very speculative way and they're just using it as a way to pump money quickly in the short term so if there's a risk to one and this is again i'm totally spitballing here but the prices do seem correlated even though the news only affects one currency at a time that's true
2: I mean, I don't think the psychology in cryptocurrency markets is different than the human psychology in any other markets. Like, people freak out when it's going down and panic sell, and people get super excited when it's going up and buy it. You know, people buy at the top and sell at the bottom, and people do that in the stock market and everything else. I'm not sure there's anything fundamentally different. I guess one of the interesting things is just like... Because, you know, going back to like stocks in the 1910s and 1920s, just like how much more interconnected the world is, right? It's like, you know, something happens in China and like I start selling or buying 15 minutes later in New York City. So I think the time cycles do seem to be like a bit compressed, like it goes up and down faster.
0: One thing that we've touched on a couple of times now, but actually never went back to was China. So I'll leave it open because Neil, you would started asking about it. And then I think we got sidetracked. But basically what have you guys seen going on with the Chinese regulation and how do you think that's going to play out with the different coins in the future? And we can talk about NEO too, if that makes sense.
2: So my understanding of the China situation is basically what China did was they banned exchanges. So like Coinbase, uh, I think it's based in San Francisco, it's a U.S. exchange where if you want to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, you can take your U.S. dollars from your bank account or from a wire transfer, you can send them to Coinbase and then you can use those U.S. dollars to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum at whatever the the market price is. Um, so like China likewise has exchanges where people could deposit Chinese yuan and buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever other currencies they wanted to buy with it. And China basically said uh you can't do that anymore. And I think they took like a, it wasn't even like you can't do that anymore, but like I think they were gonna like roll back transactions. Like it was a very aggressive regulation or an aggressive move. Like they were going to confiscate anything that was I think they were going to confiscate and a deal, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, they were going to like confiscate whatever was left in the exchanges on September 30th or something. It was like a they had like a 20 day window. So everyone was like, oh my God, if I don't get this out of the exchange, it's gonna to go to zero. So it's like, you know, even if I sell it at a twenty percent loss, at least it's not gonna to go to zero. So it triggered this huge wave of just panic selling and everyone trying to get their money all the um, a lot of the people that had money in Chinese exchanges trying to get their money out of China. And at least the analysis I've read about that is probably uh oh well, but one of the interesting ones is that basically the the people's Communist Party uh, wanted to drive down the prices so they could buy a bunch and have control over it, which is not out of the question. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happened.
3: Well, they wouldn't be able to get control just by buying and owning a lot. They'd just be able to profit. They'd have to contribute CPU power to control it. But I could totally see, I mean, I I don't follow the day-to-day news in Bitcoin anymore. It's just too overwhelming and anxiety inducing. And it doesn't like day-to-day for me, I don't believe changes the fundamentals of you know, why this stuff has value. So actually, I don't, your analysis sounds, I've barely followed that. But uh, I also have heard from others that uh, what you last said, which was that people are speculating the Chinese government wanted also, or at least officials in the Chinese government, want to be able to make some money by lowering the price.
0: Since you mentioned that, Adil, where do you guys get your crypto, Bitcoin, everything, information? What are good sources and bad ones? Because more and more, I feel like we're getting bombarded with, News or blogs, especially ones that want to sell you on certain coins. So where do you guys normally go?
1: I was just gonna say like for someone just trying to learn, like it's surprisingly annoying to <laughs> search for information. Like there's like it's hard to know what's kind of legit and what what's not. I would say two things on
3: this. One is avoid traditional like media outlets like the plague. Every time I've seen Forbes or CNBC, you know, any of those guys publish something, there's there's just something fundamentally wrong in what they're saying. They either don't have an understanding of how the protocols work, they just generally get something very basic wrong, which makes me doubt their analysis. And then on top of that, they claim to yeah, you know, they make these very highly speculative claims that are just, you know, no one really knows what's moving the price up or down. Right. There's a number of things that could be affecting it. And people don't know. And they, they speculate a lot. So I would say avoid any news source that you've already heard of today, if it covers Bitcoin, probably don't or cryptocurrencies in general, it's probably best to avoid. There are some like pretty established names in the space who have extremely good blogs. Uh, Nick Zabo is probably the best. Actually, he's widely speculated as Satoshi Nakamoto.
1: He's denied it. But well, yeah. let's give people background on that. So I've come across that story before. But Who's the creator of Bitcoin? And we haven't talked about that yet. So I think that'll be a good tangent to go on.
3: Yeah, well let's let's chew that up real quick. In case Taylor wants to add anything on as far as outlets go, I can send a list of good blogs after the fact. I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but my two cents would basically be avoid traditional news outlets and stick to like these, you know, authorities who have very good blogs. Taylor, do you want to add anything to that before we talk about Satoshi?
2: Yeah, so my strategy, as with all my information, is basically Twitter. So I have two crypto lists on Twitter. One is like everyone that seems intelligent in the space. And then that just got totally out of control. So I have a top 10 list. I can send that over, but the people are Aerie Paul, Chris Berniski, Nick Zabo, Balaji Srinivasan, Barry Silbert, Vitalik Buterin, Laura Shin, Elizabeth Stark, Fred Wilson, and Naval Ravakant. So that's my current top 10 Twitter crypto people to follow.
0: And Taylor also has a couple of really good articles that we'll link to in the show notes as well. But yeah, did you guys want to dive in on some of the backstory? It's like one of the things that we haven't talked about much yet. Where did this come from?
2: So there's a book called Digital Gold that's a bit of the backstory of Bitcoin and the whole crypto thing, if you want to read about it. Basically, the story as I understand it is, so people have been working on something like this idea of a digital gold or digital currency for a while. A lot of it driven, like it's very libertarian kind of in the philosophical roots, this idea of, you know, how do we keep the government from controlling currency? I don't like fiat. And so like some of the, like e-gold and bit gold, this idea of, getting some sort of gold-like currency where it's not a a fiat thing. So there was a a listserv of these like cypherpunk people that were going back and forth and that would work on sort of like different initial protocols. And this guy under the moniker of Satoshi Nakamoto at one point sent out uh, an email to this listserv like, hey, I just created this protocol." Called Bitcoin, and he sent over the white paper of how it works and check it out if you want to check it out. And so I think like two people, most people were like this, you know, even on this like very niche smart list, like it won't work for this reason or that reason. And a couple people downloaded it, installed it, and sort of started running it. And I think like at the end of a year, it was like a really small number of users. Like within a year, I want to say it was like maybe 30, like 20 users or 30 users or something. It was a really, really small. Initial uptick. And then it started to get a bunch of currency in the sort of like this, like libertarian thing, like all these sovereign risk people, very libertarian people that like didn't really understand the tech per se, but loved this idea of could we have a currency that we could send around the world instantaneously, uh, unlike gold, but that would be not controlled by a central government. And then that kind of started to pick it up. And then I think the thing that like really took off was the Silk Road, which was a site. It was a dark net site where you could buy drugs, I think like drugs and prostitution and like everything you couldn't legally do in any other marketplace. And that was I think like that was basically the first major use case. And then that started to get like mainstream press. and I think that was kind of like what kickstarted the actually turning it into like this is a real thing, and people started to hear about it
1: yeah i'd heard that story like i'd seen that story before but i didn't know the part where like most people still ignored him in that lister that's like in hindsight they must not be too happy about that part
2: yeah and i think he kind of phased him to get answer the question more about satoshi Uh, at a certain point he just like disappeared Uh, like the first year he was the main person working on the code and he was like the core development team and then just like other kind of technical people got interested and thought this was cool. And he started to bring them in as volunteers to work on the project. And then basically just disappeared. Like he didn't make any grand announcement. Like I'm going, you'll never hear from me again. He just like made it. What looked like, I think like, uh, there was a forum, I think it's Bitcoin.org forum. He made like a very routine post about, you know, just did this latest update and yada, yada. And then that was the last and you never heard from him and it just disappeared.
1: Since the ledger is public, is it known like how much he had? Like how much Bitcoin?
2: I want to say like three billion worth at this point. Oh man! Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> it? he, he can't cash it out. If he cashes it out, everyone knows who he is because you can figure out who cashed it out.
1: Is it possible that he died, or like uh, I don't know? Like what's like what do people speculate happened uh, to him?
2: There's a so one. There's basically two leading candidates for who it is. One is Nick Zabo that Adil mentioned earlier. Because I think kind of the interesting thing here is like. There's a very small number of people on Earth that could have done this. Like you had to have a really deep understanding of cryptography, a really deep understanding of economics and incentives, and a really deep understanding of computer science. Like if you do the Venn diagram overlap of those three fields, like there's a really there's not that many people left. So yeah, Nick Zabo is one of the people that speculated. He insists it's not him, and there's no way to know. The other person that speculated is a guy named Hal Finney, who was assuming he wasn't Satoshi, then he was the first person after Satoshi to mine Bitcoin and to use the protocol. And he died... Sort of around the time, I can't remember the exact timing, but he died maybe like six months or a year after Satoshi disappeared. And I, I think he had cancer and then he had himself cryogenically frozen. So there's like some speculation that it was Finney and he's going to, you know, come back from cryogenic freezing in 50 years and technology gets there and be the richest man alive from his Bitcoin holdings.
1: That's, that would be, that would be like someone would have to make a movie about that. <laughs>
2: um yeah so th- if that's true there's a there's probably a sci-fi movie in there anyway um and then I've, the other thing i've heard at least from like more technical people is like they don't think any one person could have written it and that Satoshi was a moniker used by a group of people that were working on it they like just that the way the code is written and what's done it just wouldn't have been possible for a single person to do it interesting
1: what do you have any thoughts on what it could be or, i mean obviously we're in pure speculation mode here but what would you put a bitcoin on if you had to
2: uh, I really have no – like all three of those, I think like all three of those are equally plausible to me. Like I don't know. I have no idea which one is more likely. I think the thing that's interesting is that it's anonymous, but I guess it's like they're just – yeah, there aren't that many people. Like the intersection to know that much about those three fields, it's like you know in the dozens of people on earth. Uh, and it, like it's very unlikely that it was someone that like never commented ever on a blog anywhere. You know what I mean? That, like someone just stayed in the shadows for 20 years. And like, has never kind of come out like it was probably someone on this mailing list, which was like a few dozen people, or maybe it was a few hundred people, but it's like not
1: that many people. It's not that many. And then the thing that's really interesting to me is that there haven't been any transactions on that account.
2: Yeah. So you can, if you made any transactions, those would be legible. Like the blockchain is a ledger. You can log on and see, you know, from what account to what account any transaction goes. So if he made any transactions, everyone would know where he was taking the money. But so far, yeah, nothing.
1: That's fascinating. It would be really interesting if it's like a recluse person who just really doesn't want to be known. And then they're basically daily battling with this thing of like, do I become known and be a multi-billionaire or do I stay unknown? And there's like valuing like, like what is the value of their privacy? Like that would be very interesting that that's like the debate that's internal debate that's happening. But yeah, I don't know. It's just really interesting to hear. Like, it, it just adds to like the mystique of it, and it's already you know it has enough of a mystique as it is. But then you tie this to it, and it's like know, it seems like something out of a movie.
3: One interesting thing I've heard, uh, I actually very recently started reading into the whole speculation over who Satoshi is. Before that, it just didn't really interest me that much. But the interesting thing I heard was that whoever it may be, it actually is beneficial, like politically speaking, that they remain anonymous because. That's actually another sort of a plane of attack for any outside entity that wants to have some kind of control over the network. Uh, Somebody who's as influential, like, let's say that, you know, somebody like Vitalik was like, you know, pressured or compromised in some way, right? Vitalik is the guy who founded uh, or invented, whatever you want to say, Ethereum. You know, he has a lot of sway over the way that community moves. And it's reasonable to assume that if people knew who Satoshi was, that he would have the same kind of sway. and. One of the things I was speculating was that the reason that it makes sense for him to remain private is that it prevents that plane of attack from a government or somebody who wants to exert control over the future of that network.
0: Makes sense. I mean, it'd be scary, <laughs> I imagine, coming out if you've that much power and you sort of created this new paradigm for internet commerce.
3: Yeah, like if, imagine if that person was to get tried because of what happened on the Silk Road or, you know, some obscure relationship, right? Or if they We're like, start like, mudslinging slinging who he is, things like that.
1: Yeah, well, I was just going to say, like, what about, like, I don't know, the, the mob or, like, criminals or things like that, too? It's, like, major target. Um, wait, actually, so Ethereum, the founder, is known, right? Yes, uh, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, so what's what's that guy's story?
2: So one of the problems, Bitcoin was kind of this first cryptocurrency that got mainstream adoption. But one of the problems with Bitcoin is the scripting language, and I can't actually remember what it's called, but the language it's written in is, like, really great for security, But it's not what's called a Turing complete, which is a computer science term that I don't fully understand. But basically uh, a Turing complete language is like much easier to write uh, applications in uh, as opposed to a non Turing complete uh, language. And it can actually do more. It has a lot more potential use cases. So the idea behind Ethereum was could you preserve some of the better elements of Bitcoin, but do it in a way that was Turing complete. And so like the story I've heard is like there was some guy that wrote A Bitcoin application, and it took him nine months to write the application, and he built the same thing in Ethereum in a day. So just like you could, you know, imagine like you're trying to develop this application ecosystem. The idea behind Ethereum was like these things that now take us nine months to build, we could get built in a day. So we could build a lot more applications. Um, and there's also trade-offs with that. Um, one of the trade-offs, as I understand it, is security. Like because it Bitcoin has a simpler scripting language, it's much less likely to be hackable. Uh, whereas because Ethereum's scripting language is more complex, it has more use cases, but potentially more vulnerabilities. And then, I guess that's the main trade-off that I'm aware of. Actually, I'm not sure what the other ones are.
1: Got it. The Ethereum story is a little bit less uh, (laughs) Hollywood-like, but it seems to make (laughs) sense still. But it's like it's um maybe that's why like at least I'll say from the outside when you talk to people who are also not well versed in this, like everyone talks about Bitcoin and yes, it's the biggest, but it just also I'm guessing has the highest market cap as well of all of them. Is it like by far the largest or is it uh, like close race between Bitcoin and Ethereum? It's pretty far. Yes.
2: Yeah, Bitcoin's like maybe two and a half or three times higher market cap than Ethereum. Um, And actually, let me add something. There's another part of the Ethereum origin story that adds an interesting layer to the whole conversation. So Ethereum was like kind of one of like the first big ICOs. I want to say they raised $30 million. Um, which at the time I think was the biggest ICO ever by a large margin. And one of the first things, one of the first institutions or things that got set up was it was called the DAO. So a DAO, again, is a decentralized autonomous organization. And they set up something that was just the DAO. And the idea behind the DAO was it was going to be a decentralized autonomous organization that invested in other Protocols. So, a bunch of the people who had initially participated in the Ethereum ICO invested their Ethereum into the DAO with the idea that it was going to invest in future projects, it was going to make everyone a bunch of money. So, it turned out the DAO was actually hackable and it was hacked. And someone stole all the money, and I think tens of millions of dollars. I don't know exactly how much, a lot of money. And so, there was this big debate in the Ethereum community. This would have been like early 2016. About what do we do here? So like, if there's no trusted third party, there's no centralized institution, you know, like Visa or whatever. If there's a fraudulent transaction on your credit card, you call Visa and you say, Hey, this wasn't me. And, you know, they'll reverse the transaction or whatever, but this is cryptocurrency. And like, once it's gone, it's gone. You can't do anything or like the one action you can do is what's called a hard fork. So what they did, what they ended up doing was there was this big political debate. And they went back and they forked the Ethereum blockchain from before the money was stolen from the DAO. So there became two blockchains. One was Ethereum, and the other one was called Ethereum Classic. And so Ethereum Classic still exists. I think it's like the 10th largest cryptocurrency by market cap. And that is the chain of Ethereum on which the theft took place. Like The person got away with the money. And then what is now called Ethereum was the chain where they They went back to before the theft happened and they they didn't reverse it per se, but they started the blockchain, the ledger again from before the theft, right? So there is like, clearly there's politics at play here where the Ethereum people had to convince people, no, don't build your apps on Ethereum Classic. You know, we want you to invest in Ethereum because there's like sort of a market mechanism and all the politics that go into that. You know, which of the two do you invest in? You know, if you're developing applications...
1: Got it. So, and who's making that decision to switch over, right? So when they say, like, they, like, who is, I don't know, actually, who is the they? So basically, the kind of the core Ethereum team has set out,
3: they have like a roadmap of sorts, where they discuss what they want to be, you know, how the network should grow, where they want to be adding new features, things like that. And uh, it's led by Alec, there's a small team that works with them. I actually don't know the details of that too well, except that, you know, this is actually one of the bigger risks with Ethereum is that uh, the decision making is pretty centralized compared to something like Bitcoin. So as long as you trust that group, this kind of gets back to the whole central authority thing. As long as you trust that group, things are fine. Whereas with Bitcoin, you don't really need to trust anyone. It's just huge. The decision-making is much more decentralized. But with Ethereum, that core group of developers does have a uh, pretty significant say in the direction of the network.
2: And that's a good point to bring up, like this idea of... We've kind of been talking about it, and uh, I mean it makes sense to talk about it in this way of like is it decentralized or is it not decentralized? but really, all these things exist on a spectrum of how decentralized are they so like uh, yeah, Bitcoin is probably more decentralized than ethereum, uh, like for example, one of the things that happened with Bitcoin recently was there was a another hard fork that where Bitcoin split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. And what happened there was a large – so in Bitcoin, it's also proof of work. And so the miners, the people that are running this hashing algorithm, get to vote on what they want to do. So the Bitcoin core team can propose this initiative. And then based on which uh, chain the miners are mining on, that's how they vote which decision they want to make. So one of the things that happened was – uh, a lot of Bitcoin mining is centralized in China for a few reasons there 's very cheap electricity. a lot of them are built by hydroelectric dams there's just these big warehouses sitting next to hydroelectric dams filled with a6 graphic cards, which are what people are using to run the hashing function and they decided to fork bitcoin so now there 's Bitcoin and bitcoin cash and the way i 've heard it explained at least is basically Bitcoin cash in the same way like China has kind of like created their own version of every major internet company. Like there's uh, Twitter and I think Weibo. I can't remember all the Chinese versions. There's Yeah. So there's kind of like a Chinese version of every major platform company, Alibaba to Amazon kind of thing that uh, China just seems to be doing the same thing with cryptocurrency. So like Bitcoin Cash is the Chinese version of Bitcoin and Ineo that Nat mentioned earlier is probably just going to be the Chinese version of Ethereum. Huh.
3: That's a couple of interesting things that just came up and I'll kind of list three of them that... Neil, based on what you're interested in, we can dive into. One is around hard forking, because there's risk associated with hard forking. You know, they're, they're pretty big events when they ha- take place. We could dive into that. Another one is actually, Taylor, you brought this up. I actually don't hear much about this, and I'm very fascinated in this, is like energy usage by these networks. The energy usage is just colossal, and it has a pretty real environmental impact. And then lastly, and there's a very interesting blog post about this that we can share in the show notes. Actually, I'm going to dive into this one because I think this is the most relevant. Is quantifying decentralization? So all these networks talk about being decentralized, and you know in many ways they are, but it's not as binary as it sounds. Something isn't just centralized or decentralized. And you know, with Ethereum, for instance, relative to Bitcoin, it is much more centralized. And Balaji Trinivasan has a very good post that we'll put in the show notes, and basically he breaks the centralization problem down into six parts. Um, I'll kind of I just pull the blog post up, so I'll read from here, but there's the mining decentralization by block reward. There's clients, so like Bitcoin client. There's the developments by commits, so who's committing most to the core code. There's exchanges, how many exchanges are there, and it's measured by volume. So how much volume is taking place on different exchange? There's nodes, which is measured by country, so where are the nodes located? And then there's owners by wallet address. And the combination of those six things is, you know, at least the way he argues, is to quantify how to decentralize these different currencies And that's actually a very important point, because, you know, let's say that, like I brought up earlier with the Ethereum example, the odds that that core group could make a decision that the rest of the folks disagree with, right, or is otherwise risky. So that ties into the hard fork part. The Ethereum core group loves to do hard forks when they push big updates. And, you know, a hard fork is incompatible with the old network beforehand. It's not backwards compatible. So there's risk associated with when you do a hard fork and when you hard fork often. And the Ethereum team loves to move very, very quickly, which, in one hand, is a good thing, but on the other hand, as Taylor explained, because they have more planes of attack, because you know they have this easier to use programming language, they have more uses, there are more planes of attack, and they hard fork quickly. You know, the odds that Ethereum gets in some way compromised are significantly higher than Bitcoin, which relatively is moving relatively slowly and uh, has fewer planes of attack. It's also virtually every metric much more decentralized than Ethereum. So the decentralization point is actually very fascinating when you're evaluating the different, or not evaluating, but at least you know reading about these different cryptocurrencies.
1: That's fascinating. And I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Decentralization of anything, it's not like a binary thing, right? Like even like um, some government structures are more decentralized than others, right? And some companies are managed more in a more decentralized fashion than others. It's always a spectrum. It's never like this one's decentralized and this one's not. So that makes sense. Actually, I want to go back to the second thing you, you had on your list, the environment one. Uh, I thought that was really interesting because when uh, I think Taylor was giving the China example, it almost sounds like an arbitrage that they're doing between power consumption and then the currency production, which probably changes as the price changes, right? So just, I mean, if we can go into more detail on that. And you also said there's like a non-zero environmental impact. I'd love to hear any more about that, that you could share.
2: Well, the, the
3: non-zero environmental impact is just a question of where that energy comes from. Right. right. So if it's hydroelectric,
1: uh, then it doesn't sound too exactly. bad.
3: Uh, but exactly. But if it's like
1: coal, then it's a problem.
3: Yep. It was actually, the arbitrage point is very interesting. You know, in college, I knew a few people who were mining Bitcoin because at CMU, you if you lived in the dorms, you didn't have to pay for utilities. So they were effectively, as, as long as they had the processing power to do it, you know, they had these separate GPUs, they could basically run it for free. Just they had this one fixed cost of buying the hardware, and then they just plug it in and then it runs itself.
1: So the the energy arbitrage is interesting. There's probably a company there for someone to like (laughs) to do that at like a larger scale.
3: Um, I wonder if you could sell like little solar powered pods that you just like stick in your backyard and there's just a bunch of GPUs and a solar panel on top.
1: (laughs) And uh, I guess the energy cost then there is not anything really. But actually, is there like an end point to where mining would stop or is mining constantly going to be happening because they have to authenticate the ledger, right? If I'm thinking about that correctly? I guess the mining would never stop.
2: Yeah. So under proof of work, which is what Bitcoin uses, the mining never stops. What the incentive will change. So right now the, the miners are awarded. There's a store of 21 million initial Bitcoins of which I want to say something like 16 or 17 million have already been awarded. But there's like an additional 5 million. And so every time you solve a block, you get a percentage of those 5 million. But they're slowly transitioning where everyone that sends a transaction in that block. So, you know, if I send you a Bitcoin, I pay a small transaction fee and the miner that wins that block gets that pool of transaction fees for everyone sitting there, but they would still be mining. Like that's the, because power has a real cost, like that's the real cost of securing the network. And the idea behind proof of stake, as I understand it, is like, can you achieve the same security without, or some security without having that kind of like electricity energy cost externality. And I don't understand very well how viable that is in the details.
1: Yeah. This is it's a brilliant way to do a decentralized currency though. Right. Cause that's like, I mean, obviously it's brilliant. That's why it's gotten to where it's gotten, but it's just like, I don't know. It's like the thought of everything.
3: Every now and then I'll go back and I'll reread the Bitcoin white paper. And I always understand an additional thing every time I go back, uh, which is kind of funny because even now I, there's especially towards the end, I'm just like, what the hell is going on where they get into the math. But, uh, It's beautiful. It's like, it's so succinct. It covers every single part of, you know, the network details. It's actually pretty incredible read. Once you, once you start grasping a bit more of the concepts. Yeah. I mean, on my first pass, I understood basically none of it, but going back now that I have a better understanding of the stuff, it's pretty incredible document.
0: And it's only eight pages. You can, you can technically read it in a fairly short amount of time. It's incredibly dense, obviously, and it takes a ton of rereads, but it's not a, a massive undertaking in terms of length.
2: Yeah, if you have listened to this episode, you have enough of understanding to read the Bitcoin white paper. Like, yeah, a lot of it still goes over my head as well, for sure. But um, you'll get to the gist of it.
0: Was there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about or any other big questions you had, Neil?
1: Um, What's like the next step? Like, is there I know, Taylor, you mentioned a few books early on. You guys mentioned the Bitcoin white paper. Yeah. What are kind of like good jumping off points after listening to this episode? So
3: all the books that Taylor mentioned, uh, Digital
1: Gold. Sovereign individual.
3: Actually, those two are the ones I hear most. There's one other one that you mentioned. I believe it was the Dictator's Handbook. I think those are those are good starts. The one thing I would add is there there aren't many books to read in this category. It's very new. Things are changing very rapidly. So my preferred source of information tends to be blogs, and I can share a list of those that we can put into the show notes. A lot of the people that Taylor mentioned, such as you know Naval and others on Twitter, is pretty valuable. I have a few that I can add there as well based on my list. But again, I would rely most heavily on blogs. There are a few very strong authorities on the topic. Vitalik's blog is also very good. He's a pretty interesting writer. My one tip, or not tip, but like, well, I guess, yeah, my one recommendation would be, you know, buy a small amount, like put a little bit of money in so you have some skin in the game because yep. it can get a little cumbersome to read some of the stuff. And if you don't have skin in the game and you're not freaking out about where your money is going, it can be pretty easy to get intimidated by the just sheer volume of content, because there's a lot of legs to this. And, you know, part of what makes it complex is also part of what makes it so interesting, right? There's like political philosophy involved, there's geopolitics, there's you know, regulation, there's, you know, network effects and incentivizing right. people to participate in a network, there's that kind of economics, then there's the actual technical standpoint, you know, kind of a fun fact, a side note here, this is something I don't understand very well. But a lot of this tech is predicated on this hashing function that, is supposedly irreversible. Uh, There's, as of now, no way to reverse this. People haven't figured that out. But the whole thing is resting on this mathematical problem. And I imagine that researching that mathematical problem, you know, is this hashing function and how to reverse it? I would speculate that there are tons of people who are researching that as we speak, because that is probably, that could bring the whole thing down. But there's a mathematical aspect to it, is like, is it possible to reverse this function no matter what you're interested in or good at, there's an angle at which you can dive into cryptocurrencies. But I would definitely recommend make a small purchase from the get go, get some skin in the game and then find which aspect of it you're most interested in.
1: That's really interesting. I, I, yeah, I think I had texted you and, and Nat and both of you guys said very similar things about um about getting interested. So that's why I had put some skin in the game. And it's funny how much more interesting everything got once you have even if it's like not very much money. But It just is easier to read through anything related to this. Because at least I think I was telling you before, some of the blogs and stuff, when I first came across them, they were just a little dense, right? And when you don't have that sort of connecting point, it's as, you know, you you know that you said it's hard to kind of stay focused on it. Yeah, interesting. And then actually, Adil, one other thing I was going to ask you based on what you just said, what about if somebody's interested in like more of the application-based thing? So like maybe not so much the underlying tech, but obviously you want to get a good overview of the underlying tech. But what about kind of like, like, is there sort of a marketplace or database of like all the different applications being built on top of Ethereum or like, what's a good place to find out more about the applications of this thing as opposed to the currency part? There
3: are, there's two sites that I can, I'll share with you guys afterwards. One of them is a list of, uh, they're called dApps, decentralized apps that currently run on the Ethereum network. And another is, it's actually called ICO Alert and it's just upcoming ICOs. Uh, And you can get an idea of what kind of products people are building. I would recommend like a basic understanding of the underlying tech before looking into some of the products, because like I said earlier, there are good ways to leverage the tech. And then there are ways that are not great. And that will kind of determine whether or not the network has value. And then on top of that, there's a thing I mentioned about hiring marketers. You know, I guess at the early stages when these companies are ICOing, it doesn't matter so much. But for a lot of the consumer facing ones, eventually you have to sell people on the real benefits of what you're building, not on the underlying tech. So it's valuable to understand those sides as well.
2: Yeah, I can add to the people want reading list. So it is interesting along the same lines of like, there's so many ways to come at this. Like I think I think of it as cryptocurrency is sort of at the center of economics and finance, cryptography, politics, and computer science. And you can kind of come at it from each of those angles, um, whatever is most interesting to you. Um, and I think like talking about like who Satoshi is, like you have to understand all of those at a pretty deep level to really understand cryptocurrency. And like, that's a pretty significant reading list. Um, the books I mentioned that I think are really helpful. Dictator's Handbook, which is mainly about the politics by, I think the guy's name is Bruno de Mesquita. The Master Switch by Tim Wu, uh, which is kind of a history of technology that talks a lot about centralization and technology. Sovereign Individuals mentioned, um, A good starting point for just like crypto and Bitcoin in general basics is a book called The Internet of Money. It was put together. It's a collection. It's basically a transcribed collection of YouTube talks by um, a guy named Andreas Antonopoulos, who is sort of a a Bitcoin evangelist that travels around and gives talks about Bitcoin. But it's very non-technical and it's just like, it's like a lot of like analogies and metaphors. It's like, What is a wallet? Like, how does a wallet work? And like, what is a ledger? And how does it just like kind of helps get some like basic understanding. I think that's kind of my go-to recommendation for just like the basics of how Bitcoin works. And then everything else can kind of be explained as like, you know, Ethereum is like Bitcoin, but so like once you kind of get Bitcoin, the next layer is a little bit more obvious. Um, And then, yeah, Nick Zabo's blog, I think is like, I think you basically read the entire archives of that. And that would be like a well-spent weekend in terms of like understanding kind of the history and details of it. Uh, in particular, my top article on his site that I recommend is a site called an uh, article called social scalability that I think really helps understand about um, kind of the potential implications.
1: Also, I love that it's a blogspot blog, like it's it has it in the domain. And actually Nat and I were talking about this. Uh, I'm not sure if it was on an episode or we were just talking about it ourselves, but it's like in some ways, like the amazing content on the internet finds its way into sort of the public knowledge. Like we were talking about how back in the day, Taleb used to post his like PDF articles on his website. And like somehow still we would like find them. And it's like this dude has a blog spot, right? And it's like the exact opposite of all the advice that like an SEO person or somebody would give, but like here it is being recommended like by every single person I've ever talked to about this, they always mention his blog.
2: And he also has a good interview with Tim Ferriss that I thought was quite good.
0: Yeah. And on that note of blogs, actually, I normally don't recommend content on Medium because most of it is sort of spammy and not good. But most of the Medium publications around crypto have really good articles. And a lot of the guys who are most involved in crypto are publishing on Medium. So you'll find a lot of good content there too. And, and we'll try to link to all of it. Taylor's too humble, I think, to plug his own stuff, but he's got a couple of good articles that we'll link as well that will be very helpful. Cool. Any last thoughts as we wrap up, guys? Can we use a this is not investment advice disclaimer
2: before this episode so none of us get sued? (laughs) (laughs) Just like we could have a kind audio engineer listen to this. You could please insert (laughs) nice little just pre-recorded. This is not investment advice. We are not financial advisors. We are just guys on the internet.
0: (laughs) I think this whole exchange will be sufficient to communicate that. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Um, I will say one other point someone made to me that I think is, you know, everyone's like listening to this and super jacked about it. I think the skin in the game suggestion is good. Like that's exactly what I did. I think making it a very small amount of skin in the game is like probably a good idea for getting started. Like very often with technology, you can see the trend, but the particulars matter a lot. Like if you were looking at the internet in 95 and you're like, this is going to be huge and you bought a bunch of AOL stock, you were right about the internet being huge, but like that didn't quite work out for you. So like, you know, Bitcoin may be the AOL of cryptocurrency and you know only time will tell
1: that's a very good distinction and i also love like the long run uh, quote that i never remember who said it but it's like in the long run we're all dead right so it's like in <laughs> the long run this like might make a ton of logical sense but you have to make it to the long run <laughs> like you have to survive long <laughs> enough basically stay you know you have to have enough uh i guess you can't go bankrupt right during that time <laughs> otherwise you can't put anything back in so yeah, you have to survive, right, to actually take advantage of that long run. For sure.
0: All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming and talking about this with us. <laughs> this is a really good conversation. Um, thanks guys for coming on again. Just, you know, last thing, where can people find you both on the internet if they want to hear more about what you're working on or what you've published in the past?
2: So my site is Taylor Pearson. Dot M-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R-P-E-A-R-S-O-N. And then uh, my Twitter handle is the same. It's probably the best place to get in touch with me at Taylor Pearson M-E.
3: And I'm at Adil Majid, A-D-I-L-M-A-J-I-D on Twitter and blog.adilmajid.com. All right. Good time, guys. Thanks again. All
0: right. right. Good check. Talk to y'all soon. All right, we hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist, no, it had to be said, but... As always, episode show notes, and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help, and we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.